So uh, we're uh, we're starting this first Advent, this first Sunday of Advent, and as Michaela shared with us, it's about hope. Through today's video, we see how a story that begins with brokenness, utter brokenness, doesn't just end with that person surviving. It doesn't just end with, okay, there was utter brokenness there and this person just happened to survive. But we see something more. We see this person joining in God's redemptive story and addressing a little bit more of the brokenness that's in the world. We see a story of brokenness that doesn't just end with survival. We see a story of brokenness that begins to join God in His redemptive work in addressing a little bit more of the brokenness that's in the world. Can you imagine what this journey must have been like for Vin and all of the other people in that boat? They were, it was just for 10 days, even though the trip was a lot longer. They said they were attacked by pirates and their engine was taken and all this kind of stuff. So they were adrift at sea for 10 days. Can you imagine those long 10 days during the day? You're just floating there. And you see nothing but water and horizon all around you, northwest, southeast. Nothing is coming. And then at nighttime, all you see is pitch darkness. Can you imagine that? For some of us, it's hard for us to even imagine, you know, waiting for our friends by ourselves at a coffee shop, right, for 10 minutes without our phone. Right? Like that, that kind of emptiness that brings, right, when we don't have that kind of technology with us. But for these people, 10 full days, you can imagine the kind of darkness that would have settled into their hearts and into their minds as they began to think, does anyone even care? Some other people, my family back home, they might be eating, having great uh, time at their dinner table. Some of the other kids may be running around playing soccer. At least they have something. But for us, we are just waiting to die. Does anyone see us? Does God even notice? You know, it's really, this really a story of hope in the midst of dark brokenness. And today's candle, that Advent candle of hope, it reminds us that as our days during winter get darker and darker, lighting this candle is not just a reminder is not just a reminder that even all of the darkness in the world, as if I asked Michaela to turn off all of her lights at her house and go into the darkest place of her basement, and with all of that darkness surrounding, one of the things about light is this. No matter how small that light is, not even all the darkness in the world can snuff out that light. See, this is the reminder that we have as we light the candle and then we see the candle burning is that no matter how dark our life gets, no matter how wide and how vast that darkness feels in our hearts and our minds, we just need one small light. And not even all that darkness that oppresses us can snuff it out. You know, there have been and there will continue to be days when we feel our own brokenness is unknown by others, it's unseen by other people as our darkness continues to grow. But I want us to be reminded today that the hope that we have is this, is that God sees us. 
This is what Advent of hope represents, is God sees us. He hears our cries. God not only sees us, but he also sent his only son to do something about it. To do something about it. He doesn't just walk by us on the street. And as we are suffering in our own mess, he doesn't say, I have other things to do or that brokenness of this person is so much that I can't possibly handle it or take on that responsibility. So we just close our minds and our eyes and we just keep on walking by. God doesn't close his eyes towards us. He actually does something about it. So this is why through Christ the Son, we always have access to the Father and His love that leads us, that provides for us, that protects us, and overcomes any fear that we may have. This is the advent of hope. So uh, let's get right into uh, to this together. Today's passage helps explain this advent of hope that addresses our brokenness. So let's look at Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 40, uh, verses 1 through 10 together. So if you have your Bibles, please open it to Psalm 40, verses 1 through 10. I'll read it for, for us. I'll be reading from the NIV. It reads this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love or your faithfulness from the great assembly. You know, some scholars, they, as they go through the psalm, they actually label the psalm the Christmas psalm. And the reason why they label it this way is because they believe that it looks forward to the birth of Christ as we see in verse 7 of this psalm and also reveals the work that he will do. You know, there are three observations that I make from this passage that I want to pass along to us that sees how God's hope addresses our brokenness. And the first one is this. What we notice is that this passage um, in this passage, we see this presence of a superimposed greater story. I know those a lot of big words, but bear with me. A superimposed greater story in this psalm. Now, here's what I mean by this. When we read through the psalm, the psalm is obviously David's psalm. 
It's, it's David's sharing. It's David's brokenness that he is giving and he's crying out to God. It's David's own personal experience and a story of what he is suffering through. You see, in it, we hear this. He's waiting patiently to hear from God and enduring that for God to actually answer him. What we see is that he describes himself as he feels like I'm in a pit I'm in a cistern. I've been thrown down into a dark place and I cannot get out. There's this hold on me that for some reason, no matter how hard I try, I just can't get out of this mire. He, he describes it like a slimy pit. It grabs hold of him. He says that God rescued him from that pit and then set his feet upon a rock. He says that God wasn't after sacrifices. He wasn't after offerings saying, you now have to give me sacrifices. You now have to give me offerings for the things that I've done for you. But what God wanted was David. He says, David, I want you. So David responds to this gracious God by saying, here I am, God. I want to do your will as we see. And then he also proclaims, because you have done this for me, God, I want to tell everyone about your saving works. Because in the same way that you found me in my darkest brokenness, I want to make sure other people have access to you as well. See, but what we also see in the psalm is, although that this is David's personal story that he is sharing, we also see parallels in this psalm that could also be used to describe Christ and his impending good works that has yet to come. In the first two voices, uh, in the first two verses, we see these echoes of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Look what he says. He says, and you, I cry out to my God. You know, Jesus, we see, is crying out to the Father on the cross and waiting for the Father to answer him to what he seems like to be an empty response, a non-response from the Father when Jesus is on the cross. But then it says that God, what he does, where it seems like God's not answering, that God turns his face away when, when Jesus himself is in his most darkest moment, it says, but you, God, lifted me out of the slimy pit and set my feet upon a rock. It, it mentions and it parallels. It's the superimposed story upon that is Jesus overcomes death. That slimy pit that wants to destroy him and take him down and make sure that humanity has no hope. He overcomes the darkest brokenness that all of humanity suffers through. Then in verses 6 to 8, we also see this. Jesus offers himself to come and be the sacrifice that the world needs. And finally, in verses 9 to 10, there is this gospel proclamation that Jesus gives. This is why I will not remain silent. This is why I will not conceal this good news. I will proclaim it. And we see Jesus' ministry proclaiming this good news so that everyone has access to this hope. For their life. 
In fact, if we're not convinced that there's a superimposed greater story upon this, we, all we need to do is turn a few pages to the New Testament. And when we read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 10, we see the author of Hebrews also quoting from verses 6 to 8 of this psalm and declaring that this is Jesus. This is the story of Jesus. So what's important about the superimposed greater story? Well, the point that I'm trying to make is this. We may all have a broken story the same way that David had a broken story. But the good news that we have here, it doesn't need to remain just our own brokenness. Just as we see that Jesus does upon David's broken story, Jesus comes and enters in into David's brokenness. You see, this entering in is where Jesus doesn't just sit there and sit alongside of us, a little bit distant, close, but still distant from us, and sit there and listen to our own wallowing. Jesus actually enters right into what we are experiencing. You see, but the difference with Jesus is that as he enters in into our brokenness and superimposes his greater story upon us, he now gives us his story upon which we can anchor ourselves to so that our hope is no longer on our strength. Our hope is no longer on our ability to get us out. Our hope is now in this guarantee of what already happened to Christ, where he overcame the grave, he overcame death, and he says, latch on to me, I'll come into your brokenness, latch on to me, and I'll bring you out in the same way that I overcame death. See, look at verse 17. If we go, move a little bit further back uh, through the psalm, and we go to verse 17, it says, David says this he says but as for me i am poor and needy but now listen to this this is the esv translation he says but the lord takes thought for me you see what david is proclaiming there he's saying i'm poor and needy but you know god's thought is not just on god's sovereignty on his majesty he's not there saying wow my life is so great right and your life man it's so broken it's it, wow i feel so sorry for you guys no he says that as i'm sitting there poor and needy he says this sovereign god who is completely satisfied in himself and does not need us he says his whole thought is with us all of the effort of his thoughts is with us. Brothers and sisters, do we get this? This is the kind of God that we serve. That in our brokenness, we are not left alone. He says that God's thoughts are for us. It sits with us. It understands it. It lives in it. You see, Jesus thinks of us and comes to us. He enters into our story and provides a superimposed greater story upon which we can now have hope and we are invited to come on board with him. Jesus thinks of us and enters our brokenness so that no longer do we find ourselves crying by ourselves to the Father and saying, Father, save me. I cry out to you. Will you answer me? But instead, now Jesus joins our cry with his prayer that he prayed on the cross. Remember what he prayed? He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
You see, Jesus' prayer went answered. And this is why when he superimposes his prayer upon us, as we cry out to God and we say, in my brokenness, God, do you hear me? The emphatic answer is yes. And not only is it yes, there is a guarantee of the hope that Jesus brings. Because Jesus cries out to the Father on our behalf. God himself intercedes for us. And he says, forgive them, Father. Because a lot of our brokenness, it also comes from ourselves. We're the ones that get ourselves into this place. And David understood that. But the good news is we're not just crying out by ourselves. Jesus comes in and on our behalf, he cries out to the Father. He says, forgive them. Because of Jesus' resurrection, he has now the power and the authority to lift us up out of our darkest brokenness and set our feet upon the rock. Or in other words, set our feet upon Jesus. Why is this important? This is important because, look, he says, when we set our feet upon Jesus or the life of Christ and the life that he wants us to have, he says, Jesus then gives us a new song to sing on the rock of Christ, as our life now anchors in him, we begin to see life differently. He says, there's a new song that, that comes out of our mouths. In other words, he says, we don't sound like a broken record, right? Saying, woe is me. This is my history, right? And, I, and I'll never be healed because of this brokenness. Woe is me. This is my situation. And I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Woe is me. This is my brokenness. And I don't know why, but I keep falling into this trap. We don't need to sound like a broken record. He says, now upon Christ, on the life of Christ, he says, we are given now a new song to sing. Despite my brokenness, despite my neediness, despite how, how um, misdirected I may be in my life, here is my new song that God places. You are worthy to be saved because Christ loves you. It's a new, new self-image that he gives us. That the God of the universe is mindful of us and comes down to save us. And we begin to pray like the prayer of David, who am I, Lord, that you are mindful of me? And it's this new song that comes out of our mouth that we must be significant for God to have done that for each and every one of us. But here's a challenge though. As great as that sounds, he mentions here the challenge that we face in verse 4, David says, is the challenge of comparing our life with others. He says that we begin to look to the arrogant. We begin to look to the proud. We begin to look to false gods as our source of hope. You see, brothers and sisters, that's what we do. Rather than looking to Christ and setting our feet upon the rock, what we do instead is we compare our life with other people. And we just say, how come my life doesn't look more like that? And we look towards, and that's what God calls human arrogance. To believe that there's something in and of ourselves that we can actually have control in. 
as much as control or as much as other people's lives seem so much better, it's arrogant to think that because we don't have that kind of control. And so he says, why do you look to the proud? Why do you look to the arrogant? Why do you look to false idols in your life? Put your hope in Christ, he says. This is the challenge that we're always going to face. Is, is our depression, is our darkness, is, is our brokenness, and everything that we do, is it always going to be wrapped up as we look to the proud, the arrogant, and compare our lives and say, I want my life to look like that, or are we going to anchor ourselves on the life of Christ? You see, the only thing that's then required of us where he says, you don't need to give any sacrifices, you don't need to give any offerings, because the ultimate price was paid by Christ. As he gave his life for us. So all we need to do as we see in verse 7. He says come. He says come to him. He says here I am. I have come David says. And the reason why he's able to come. Is not because of the offerings that he gave. It's because of the life of Christ. That was given for us. You see Jesus enters our brokenness. Doesn't stand afar. He doesn't stand afar observing and just clapping us along saying, good job, keep going. You know, you can do it. He doesn't do that. He comes into our life and offers a new life that was made possible because of him. And I want to ask you, will you choose him? Or will you continue to choose these other things? The second observation that we make here is that obviously from this passage, what we see is that Jesus understands our brokenness. Jesus understands our brokenness. Whereas David wasn't innocent of his own sin, and he wasn't innocent of the cause of his own brokenness, um, what we see here is that Jesus allows himself to be broken for us. Jesus doesn't come as a superhero, completely you know, oblivious of the pain that we're in and not able to empathize with our own brokenness. No, he says that Jesus took on our brokenness. He knows the pain that we're suffering through. Jesus, God could have provided a way where he says, well, I'm immortal, I'm sovereign, nothing can hurt me, so I'm just going to come and bloop, 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 and I'll do my way. No, he enters in and allows his body to be broken. His spirit to be broken for us. He understands. Look at what Hebrews 4.15 says. It says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. To drive this point home, Jesus doesn't just think of us and doesn't just hear our cry. What we see Jesus doing is he, under, he enters in and to our very brokenness. He suffers through our very brokenness. And he understands and he says, let me help. See, in this broken state, God the Father, as we see in Isaiah, he says, whom shall I send to this broken world? Whom shall I send to a world that doesn't listen and doesn't hear? Jesus doesn't look and say, oh, that's so inconvenient. 
right? I'm so good here, right? It's so nice here. Why do I need to go there? Come on, God. I have other things to do. I have a lot more creation to make, right? I don't have time. No. When, when God looks at this brokenness in the world, in our lives, he says, whom shall I send? And God himself puts up his hand first and he says, send me. I'll go. He doesn't wait for other people. He doesn't send his army of angels and say, you guys are my drones and my troops. You guys do all of the work. You know, what do I make you for, right? You guys do. No, God himself puts up his hand and he says, send me. I want to do something about it. No, do you know how hard that is? When we see brokenness around us and when we, when we see whether it's people who are experiencing homelessness, we see other people who are experiencing mental health issues, and we see their darkness. And God says, whom shall I send? A lot of us, we walk by because, and we put our heads down because we don't want to respond. Our, our life is complex as it is. It's complicated. There's, it's filled with stuff. How much more for God? Yet he puts up his hand and he says, send me, Lord. Send me. I'll do it. This is why the psalmist now says, sacrifice and offerings you do not require because Christ paid it all. It'd be more accurate, I think, if David adds here, sacrifice and offerings you do not require of me. It's not that, that God just says, I don't need it anymore. No, God is just. There must be justice that is paid for that brokenness. And, but he pays it. It isn't that he just ignores the brokenness that is there. Someone has to pay. And Jesus pays so that we don't have to. Here's the last observation. The third observation that we make is this uncontainable good news. And this passage, it ends with this kind of sheer joy that exudes from those who experience God's hope and promise. Look at Psalm 40, uh, verse 8. It says, I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. You see, when we surrender our brokenness and when we receive this gift of life, this life of Christ within us, it begins to change us. It begins to transform us. You know, no longer do we see God's way of being just about, you know, having to go to church. We don't see God's way about just having to do missions. God's way of having to do certain spiritual disciplines. Right? We don't see it as a task or as a, you know, as a chore, an extra responsibility for our life. He says, we begin to delight in it. It brings a new freedom. It brings a new joy. Right? We're not saying, oh man, I'm trudging along this Christian life and I just have to do it because it's the right thing to do. No, it's like, it's, it's an awesome thing to do. It changes our hearts because we've experienced, we've tasted and seen the goodness of God. See, we begin to delight in his ways. It begins to come out of us. No one told Carol or Stacy, go and bake cookies and share it with people in the neighborhood. It becomes the delight. And it grows. And it begins in small ways. 
In fact, it's uncontainable. Look at verses 9 to 10. I proclaim your saving acts. I do not seal my lips, Lord. I do not hide your righteousness. I speak of your faithfulness. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, doesn't this sound a little bit different than what we're used to in terms of what spirituality is? A lot of times we take spirituality as, no, it's a private thing. Hey, don't ask me about it. It's a personal matter. Hey, my, my spirituality is a private thing. Right? So why are you sticking your nose in? Right? It's my business. That's not what David says. That's not what the gospel is about. He says when it comes into us and we receive it, he says it becomes shared. It's public. People see it and we want other people to experience it. We begin to proclaim not because we're told to. It's we want to. We don't seal our lips and say, oh, I just need to keep my mouth shut because it's not appropriate in the workspace. No, we can't help but share this with other people who are around us. We don't hide our righteousness and we don't try to pretend that we're not Christian, that we're not a follower of Christ because we've seen it and we've experienced it. We begin to speak. We don't conceal. Brothers and sisters, what is our faith like? Is it a concealing one? And if it is, perhaps it's because we have yet to taste and see that God is good. Perhaps it's because rather than anchoring our life on Christ, we still look to the proud and we still look to the arrogant and we still cry out to God saying, I want my life to look like that. Rather than anchoring our life in Christ, and seeing the difference that he makes. Brothers and sisters, may we begin to allow Christ to address our brokenness. And as he does, may we not look to false gods, the arrogant or the proud, and want our life to parallel that story. Rather, let's pray that our life will be anchored in his story, his greater story, to bring hope, healing, renewal, and joy. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for blessing us with this time and this reminder, Father, Lord, of just how good you are. And I pray, Father, Lord, that as we see this choice that we now have, where do we anchor our story to? Do we anchor it on you? your greater compelling story? Or are we still asking that our story falls along with the arrogant and the proud and those stories, Father Lord, that have no guarantee? Father Lord, as we wrestle with this, help us to keep choosing you. Help us to experience you more deeply in our life. I thank you, Father. I pray for each one of us. May your spirit lead us. May we open ourselves to you, Father Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.